millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains some graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. There are references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's Thursday, the 6th of January, 1938, and Leonard William Roberts is in the witness box in Newcastle's Coroner's Court. He's about to give evidence in the inquest into the murder of Dorothy May Everett, who, on the 28th of November, was found strangled and mutilated in the grounds of Broughton School, where they both worked. This former school handyman hasn't been arrested or charged with his sickening crime. Yet, this coronial inquest, now in its third day, has in effect become a committal hearing to establish whether there's sufficient evidence of guilt to send him to trial. Lose at trial, and Len will lose his life. To save his neck, he has to tell his story. But in volunteering for the witness box, the court's going to hear about a lot of lies. Len's going to be further incriminated by these. And what he swears to be true will be even more scandalous. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part four of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, The Vampire Murder. The finale will be released soon on regular podcast platforms. But if you'd like to hear the whole story now, all five parts are available to show supporters as a thank you for helping me make this podcast. The Patreon link's in your show notes. And if you're a fan of the show, I'd love you to leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Leonard William Roberts was born in Barry Dock, South Wales, on the 23rd of June, 1904. 
He emigrated to Australia on the 25th of November 1926 at the age of 22, arriving as an assisted immigrant aboard the ship Ballarat. Len worked in Victoria for a while, but then was out of a job for about five years during the Great Depression. He'd started at the Broughton School about two years ago. Now, under questioning, Len told the court he didn't keep regular company with any particular young lady. Rather, he saw different women at different times. On the night of the 27th of November last year, he'd been out with Joan Hill, taking her to a dance at Merriweather. Afterwards, he'd seen her back to her place. Joan had adjusted her watch on the veranda as he was leaving. It was then 12.22am. From her place in Turnbull Street, Len said it was a two-minute walk to the tram. He waited maybe four minutes to board the tram and then got off six minutes later at Union Street. He got another tram to Perkins Street. When Len got off that tram, he thought he'd glanced at a clock, dimly recollecting it was about 12.47. Len reckoned he'd reached the school grounds at 12.50. He'd not noticed anyone or anything as he made his way up the steps and inside. No one sitting in the darkness on the grass, no gloves, handbag, bangle or handkerchief just off the path. Len told the court he'd taken Joan out maybe eight times in the past few years. When they'd parted after their Saturday night date, they'd made an arrangement to go out again the following Wednesday. But before they did, Len had written her a letter. This was read to the court. Quote, Dear Joan, this note is to offer my apologies for having found it necessary to even remotely bring your name into this ghastly affair at the school. I have naturally been questioned regarding my movements on Saturday night, and of course, I had to say where I had been. I do not know if you have had a visit from the police yet, but they are sure to want corroboration of my statement. For any inconvenience I may have caused you or your family, I sincerely apologise. We'll see you on Wednesday night. Yours sincerely, Len. Len had told the police about going out with Joan during his first interview on the night of the murder, but they hadn't sought her corroboration until the 7th of December. Then, she'd confirmed his chronology and given them the letter the court had just heard. From the police's perspective, the letter had been Len seeking to ensure that Joan backed up his version of events. From Len's point of view, it was simply him saying sorry for mentioning her name. That he hadn't said in the letter what he'd told police would seem to indicate he was telling the truth and that he felt confident whatever Joan said, it would align with his version. Sergeant Magne asked whether Len had been to see. This question was because the murderer had tied Dorothy's stockings around her neck with a reef knot, which were commonly used by sailors. Len said he had worked on a ship, but it had been as a refrigerating greaser, who didn't use ropes because his job was in the engine room. Sergeant Magne moved on to Len's teeth, or lack thereof. Len wore an upper set of dentures, but not lower ones, he said, because they made it hard to eat and to talk. Sergeant Magne put it to him, You have no teeth in your bottom jaw? Len said, That is correct. What was curious was that Dr. Alec Allen had testified that the killer had had two teeth in the upper left-hand jaw, but Sergeant Magne failed to ask about this. Next, the officer pursued the line that had police believing the man on the stand was the killer. I'll show you a name, Sergeant Magne said. I want you to look at that name. Len did. Sergeant Magne continued, Was that young lady employed at the school during your time? Yes. Were you on intimate terms with her? 
Yes, I was. But that wasn't what Len had said at first in his second interview at Newcastle Police Station. Then he'd told police he'd never had any relations with any of the maids who worked at Broughton. Fact was, he'd been involved with two of them. But now in court, the focus was on one of these women. How long was she there? Sergeant Magnay asked. Len said he thought seven or eight months. Did she frequent your room? Len replied, she came there on a number of occasions, sometimes once or twice a week. Sergeant Magnay wanted to know if Detective Sergeant McCarthy had asked Len to come back to the station after that second interview to sign a statement. Len replied, yes, I said I would sign a typed statement if it were correct. That was on the Tuesday. Len continued, On the following Wednesday week, the sergeant came to the school and asked would I go to the police station as they wanted to see me about my statement. I visited the police station. The Newcastle police, having taken Len's statement on the 7th of December, had not typed it and presented it to him to sign until the 15th. Len went on. I was given it to read. It turned out to be incorrect, things being put in that were never mentioned at the questioning, and things omitted that should have been put in. I refused to sign the statement and asked if I could take it away to have it corrected. He was told no. Len then said to the detectives present that he had legal advice and he wouldn't sign anything that wasn't correct. He finished with, In that case, gentlemen, I bid you good evening. I have an appointment. Len told the court that Detective Sergeant William Alford said to one of his colleagues, Shut that bloody door. Detective Sergeant Alford actually got up and did it himself and then told Len to sit down. Len asked for a solicitor. Detective Sergeant Alford said there wasn't one available at this time. Len refused to answer any more questions. In court, he was shown the statement he'd supposedly given and Len referenced one part of it and told the court, I say, that was never said. He claimed there'd been at least seven mistakes he wasn't allowed to correct. At this time, and for a long time afterwards, New South Wales police were notorious for conducting long interrogations that would then be boiled down into misleading, contradictory, or even false statements that suspects were then pressured to sign. This was often done when detectives believed they had the guilty person and were determined to do everything to secure a conviction. Police might fabricate a false confession, but this wasn't very subtle. What was more common was presenting a statement where the suspect supposedly made claims that could easily be proven to be lies, either by other witnesses or by what he or she would later say or later testify. Of course, making the picture murkier was that every crook worth his or her salt would claim this had happened to them. If Len's allegations his statement contained numerous mistakes that cast suspicion on him was to be believed, it could very well have come about as a result of Detective Sergeant Alford and others deliberately trying to stitch him up. It could also have been because believing he was guilty, over the course of the week it had inexcusably taken them to type up his notes, their memories had become inadvertently selective and biased. What made things murkier was that Len actually had lied initially in that second interview when asked if he'd had any sexual relationships with female Broughton employees. Why had he lied? Was it because he was trying to present as clean-cut and decent when in fact he was a sex pervert capable of murder? Or was it simply because he was trying to protect his reputation and the reputations of the women he'd been with? 
Sergeant Magnay wanted to know about another of Len's lovers from the school. He named her, but it was agreed at his request that her identity would not be revealed in the press. Len said he'd taken her out twice and that she'd also come to his room occasionally. All of this aligned with what Dot had supposedly told her sister Elsie about Len being a star boarder to a lot of people. A man confessing to multiple casual sexual relationships was then an affront to decency, and certainly not suitable for young ears, and the coroner, Mr Chiplin, ordered parents to remove all children from the court or the police would do so. Truth reported, several boys and girls between 7 and 12 years were escorted from the galleries. Some of these kids would hide or sneak back in and soon have to be turfed out again. Answering more questions, Len told the court that Joan Hill was not one of the two girls being referred to. Quote, It has nothing to do with Miss Hill at all. Sergeant Magnay asked if when the women came around the back of the school to gain access to his room, their sexual relations had been of the normal type. Len said yes. Asked if Leonard William Roberts was his real name, Len replied that it was. This seemed a strange question, but its purpose would be revealed soon enough. Had Len told the police that he had sucked the second girl's lips, Len said he had not. Had he said, I never asked Dot Everett to go out at any time, that was correct. His cross-examination continuing, Len said he'd been in the upper grounds for about five minutes when the paperboy had told him about the accessories he'd found. As for being able to see the spot where the body was discovered from the upper grounds, Len said it would be possible if you were looking in the right direction. His version of what he'd done on the Sunday was that he'd approached the body but not touched anything before going up to the school just as Mrs. Futrell and Jean were coming out. Leonard thought he'd said it must be Dot. He'd been told by Mrs. Futrell to go and check. Back at the body, he'd lifted the corsets from the face and confirmed the worst. It was Dot. Then he'd gone back to the school to tell Mrs. Futrell. Sergeant Magnay now related at length a part of that second interview on the 7th of December that had seen Detective Sergeant McCarthy tell Len things he'd been told by a female witness that he'd interviewed. What Len had to do now in court was agree that these things had been related to him. Detective Sergeant McCarthy told Len that when he'd interviewed this girl, quote, she informed me that when she heard of the murder, she said that you had done it. Now in court, Len had to say, yes, this had been said to him by Detective Sergeant McCarthy at the police station. Detective Sergeant McCarthy had continued. When I asked her why she had said this, she said, because I am frightened of him, because of things I have known he has done. When I asked her what she meant by this, she said, they are too horrible to tell you. In court, Len now agreed, yes, this had been said to him at the police station. Sergeant Magnay then put it to Len that Detective Sergeant McCarthy had continued. She said to me, was Dot bitten? Len told the court, I believe that is right. He'd also been told by Detective Sergeant McCarthy that this girl had asked the condition of Dot's body and once told, had said, Lenny Roberts did it then. Len had told Detective Sergeant McCarthy what he now told the court, that he didn't commit the crime. Sergeant Magnay pressed on with questions. Len agreed he'd tried to persuade this woman to stop seeing her boyfriend, Hugh. 
He denied the girl had said she was sick of Len hanging around her. As for hitting her with a rolled-up newspaper, Len admitted he'd gone into the school study one night and asked her if she'd be seeing him that night. She'd said no, and then he'd asked, was she going out with Hugh? She replied, I might be going out with somebody else. Len had then, he claimed, lightly struck her on the face and had not meant to hurt her. Len agreed he'd asked the girl to marry him, but also said he couldn't do that for a couple of years until his finances improved. Sergeant Magnate asked if Len had once said to the girl, I could strangle you on the spot. He denied saying any such thing. Len had been in the witness box for three hours of he said. Now came the start of six hours of she said. The coroner cleared the court so the former Broughton maid who'd made these allegations against Len would feel more comfortable giving evidence. He allowed the press to remain on the condition they did not report her name. Later, Mr. Chiplin would allow that she be referred to in court and in the newspapers as Miss X. These rulings, identity suppression and a Hollywood-sounding codename, were certainly dramatic, but they were also completely ineffectual. Sergeant Magnay's questioning, particularly about Len hitting a woman with a newspaper, made it clear that Miss X was Ethel Herbert, who'd been identified previously in court by her friend Betty Robinson. Miss X, 19, reported as attractive, told the coroner she'd worked at Broughton for eight months and resigned last October. She'd been going out with a young man and Len had asked her to ditch him and be his girlfriend. She'd refused. Miss X said that one day she'd been in Reverend Futrell's study when Len had come in and asked her out. When she said no, he struck her hard across the face with a rolled newspaper, and this blow had made her cry. She told the court, I did not speak to Roberts for over a week. I told him that he was not a gentleman and that I had never been hit in my life before by a man. Miss X said he persisted in asking her out and to marry him. She refused his entreaties. As for marrying him, she told him he had no position and nothing to offer her in life. Len said she was wrong about that. She claimed he said, I will have a reasonable income when I'm 34. I am now 29. She said she didn't believe he was coming into money. He said that if she married him, he'd tell her his real name. Had Lynn Roberts claimed to be 29? Maybe he had, though it seems odd that he'd make himself younger and then claim he was coming into some money at the age of 34, which was actually only a year away. Was Lynn using an alias? It's possible he wanted her to think so for whatever reason. In reality, the answer was no. Census and immigration records at Ancestry.com.au show he was Leonard William Roberts. Miss X proceeded to tell the court that Len had been so angry at being turned down that in September he'd exclaimed, If you don't marry me, you won't marry anyone. A man ought to strangle you on the spot. Miss X testified, quote, I admit I was frightened, but I hadn't the slightest fear that he would carry out his threat. Miss X and Betty had stowed their suitcases in Len's room before they left the school abruptly in the first week of October. One of those cases had actually belonged to Mrs. Geary. Miss X said she'd gone back to the school a week later to return it. On this visit, she'd seen her former co-workers, including Len. This had led him to write to her. 
She'd then gone to the school to cancel an appointment she'd made with him. But he was having his tea and unable to talk and said he'd catch up with her. He did so down the street and they sat on a seat to talk. Len said he was glad to see her. She asked him not to write anymore. Her mother had opened his last letter and she didn't approve. She told the court she'd said, I have had enough of you at Broughton School. Len, she said, was always pestering her. But at the same time, she did feel a bit sorry for him. Miss X told the coroner Len had asked if she loved him enough to have intimacy. She'd replied, no, before I do that, I would want to be well and truly married. She said that Len had told her he liked books about crime and if he ever committed a murder, he would cover up his tracks well. Her testimony spilled over into Friday morning. Though the court was still closed to the public, more than 100 people, reportedly mostly women, hovered outside all day in the hope of seeing Miss X and Len Roberts. Before Miss X returned to the box, Sergeant Magne received permission for another witness to testify. This was Samuel Barnett, who'd been in the tobacco trade for 48 years. Mr. Barnett was shown two cigarette butts. His expert opinion was that both of them contained log cabin fine-cut tobacco and had been handmade using zigzag papers. What did that mean? The reporters would have to wait to find out. Miss X had allegedly, in her interview with police, said she knew that Len was guilty because she knew of the terrible things he'd done. But now she testified they'd never kissed, never fondled, never had sex. Len, of course, had already testified that she'd visited his room for that purpose a few times a week. Miss X, though she'd said yesterday she didn't believe that Len would actually strangle her, now said the contrary, that she'd sometimes thought he'd make good on his threat. Miss X agreed that when she'd been questioned, she'd asked Detective Sergeant McCarthy if Dot had been bitten. She said she'd just been curious. The Sydney CIB man had described to Miss X the injuries that Dot had suffered. Miss X now said in court, I told him I thought it was Roberts. The police prosecutor, Sergeant Magne, asked why. She replied, My mind flew back to the time he said he would strangle me and also to his violent temper. Sergeant Magne asked if Miss X had told Sergeant McCarthy, quote, I am frightened of him because I know of the things he has done. Miss X denied actually saying that, what she'd said was, There is one thing I could tell you, but it is too disgusting. There was a big difference in these claims. That Detective Sergeant McCarthy had recorded what she'd said incorrectly seemed confirmed by the fact that it had been arranged for a policewoman to interview Miss X about whatever was too disgusting to tell a male officer. But now in court, Miss X said that she'd only told the policewoman what she'd already said in court. Quote, that was all I had to tell her. Miss X claimed the only time she'd been in Len's room was the night she'd left in October. Tom Donegan's solicitor, Mr. O'Neill, was still in court and had the right to question witnesses and introduce evidence. Whether it was out of curiosity or whether it was because he was supporting Len, Mr. O'Neill called for the three letters between Len and Miss X to be read to the court. In the first, on the 11th of October, Len had written, Have you forgotten me already? It is no use writing a letter until I know the answer to that question, so this is only a reminder that I still wait. 
so will you please just write me a line to let me know where I stand. Three weeks later, having received no reply, he wrote again. This was a longer letter, much of it dealing with seemingly trivial goings-on about what a task mistress Mrs. Futrell remained and how Betty and Miss X's replacements had done a runner after just a day in their jobs. Len went on to personal matters. Quote, I don't think it is going to be any easier for me now you are not here. I am missing you terribly, dear. Isn't it possible for you to come to town sometimes so that I can meet you, even if it is only for an hour? He went on. By the way, Mrs. Geary is a bit worried about her suitcase, I think. She has said a few times that you promised to return it on Saturday night. This morning, she asked me if I knew your address. I told her I didn't know, so if you see her, don't put her wise to anything. Why would Len have written this if Miss X, as she'd claimed in yesterday's testimony, had already returned the suitcase? Len signed off. This is all for now. Please drop me a few lines in return. Don't forget you promised me a photograph. Good night, and believe me to be, as ever, yours. Of course, threatening would-be stranglers can write mash notes, but Len's letters seemed only to reveal genuine affection and a desire to know where he stood. Inadvertently, that suitcase detail made at least part of Miss X's account seem untruthful. So perhaps did her letter back to Len. Dear Len, just a few lines in answer to your letter, which I have just this minute received. To tell you the truth, Len, I was expecting it, but never mind. I am very sorry for the way I have neglected you, but you really are a little hasty, don't you think? To tell you the truth, I have started many times to answer your letter, but every time I sit down, I thought you might send the letter to Hugh, and that would only cause a row between Hugh and I. Miss X went on. I hope you can understand my feelings. I know I am silly, but you see, I was very worried about the last affair, but anyway, we soon got over it. Len, I am sure you would not do a thing like that. I think I had better drop it. Miss X went on to write about the weather, about living at home with her mother and father, who didn't approve of her staying out late, and whether he thought the horse she wanted to bet on the Melbourne Cup was a winner. She wrote about her family, her dog, and a rabbit she'd just been given. Quote, You should see it, all white with pink eyes. Such a dear, Len. And while she'd testified in court that her mother didn't approve of Len writing to her, here Miss X wrote, quote, Len, I want to pay you a compliment. Your handwriting is beautiful. Mother says so too. Miss X signed off. Well, I think I have told you all the news until next time, hoping you are not annoyed with me. I might be coming into town on Friday night, and if I do, I will be at Derby Street Corner at 7 o'clock. If I am not there by 7.30, you will know that I cannot. She signed off, Yours, Edith. Though, of course, that name wasn't revealed in court or in the press. Miss X slash Edith had even added a postscript. As you can see by this letter, I am far superior at reading letters than writing them. Answer soon. Mr O'Neill wanted to know what this phrase meant. I was very worried about the last affair, but anyway, we soon got over it. Miss X claimed it was about the night they'd sat on the seat and talked and she'd said she didn't want to see him anymore. But that didn't really explain the next sentence. Len, I am sure you would not do a thing like that. I think I'd better drop it. Mr. O'Neill pointed out that Miss X, despite Len's threats to strangle her and the disgusting things he'd said about wanting intimacy, 
had written to say she was sorry she'd neglected him. Had she actually been? She replied, not very. But she'd signed the letter, yours. Miss X agreed that she had. But didn't she have a boyfriend? She vacillated, quote, not a permanent friend, he's a friend of the family. Yet in previous testimony, from Betty Robinson, from Miss X, and in her letter, it had been very clear that Hugh was her beau. Miss X said her letter to Len was friendly because her mother told her not to write a nasty one and because she'd been brought up not to send mean letters to anyone. Mr. O'Neill asked if Miss X was aware that Len had sworn, quote, He has had relations with you on many occasions. Miss X said she was aware and she denied any such sexual relationship. Mr. Wheeler wanted to know how she'd felt when Len hit her with a newspaper. Had it changed her attitude? She said, yes, that hurt my feelings. How had she felt when he'd proposed sexual intimacy? I was annoyed then and disgusted. The newspapers didn't report it, but it would later be made clear that this suggestion had been so disgusting to Miss X because Len had actually said they ought to have sex using prophylactics. Mr. Wheeler asked if the letter that Miss X had written was a prelude to breaking it off with Len. She said, yes. He asked, was it not that when you were at Broughton, you liked Roberts and when you were away, you liked Hugh? Miss X said, no. She also denied that Mrs. Geary had spotted her by the gates with a man and said, I saw you with Len. And she denied telling Mrs. Geary or Betty that Len had given her chocolates. But what about the night that Miss X and Betty had left the school and left their bags in Len's room? Betty had testified that she'd gone to the dance alone and that Miss X had remained behind. Miss X told the court what actually happened was that after Betty had left, she'd gone into town herself and shopped for her mother. She'd only arrived back to Len's room three minutes before Betty returned from the dance at 10pm. So she and Len had certainly not been together alone for about three hours that night. Miss X said that Len had never suggested anything to her she had not mentioned in court. By this, it was meant he'd made no requests for anything other than normal intimacy. Mr. Wheeler asked if she'd had sexual relations with any man. Miss X refused to answer, and her counsel objected. Mr. Wheeler said there'd been no objection to her answering in the negative when the same question had been put about Len. The coroner directed the witness to answer. Miss X said... No, she'd never had sex with anyone. Mr. Wheeler prodded, Had she liked Hugh better than she liked Len? Miss X said, Yes, I never liked Roberts. She denied he'd ever taken her to the pictures or to a dance. Mr. Wheeler asked, Has Len ever bitten you? She answered, No. Mr. Wheeler asked, Were you asked what you meant by your remark to the police that you were frightened of Roberts because of the things you had known he had done? Miss X replied, Yes, the horrible thing was when Roberts made a suggestion to me in the kitchen. That suggestion was having sex with prophylactics. After a total of six hours in the witness box, Miss X left the stand and court was adjourned until Monday. Hers had been quite bewildering testimony. Miss X was a virgin who'd never been intimate with Len or even with her boyfriend Hugh, who wasn't actually her boyfriend, she said. Miss X had said she was sure that Len was guilty of a horrific sex murder because she knew the terrible things he'd done. They were hitting her with a newspaper, 
threatening to strangle her and requesting sex with a condom. All of which were grounds for suspicion, yet there were parts of her testimony that seemed inconsistent. Would Len have suggested sex with a condom when, according to her testimony, they'd never been out, he'd never given her chocolates, and they'd never kissed? Maybe he was that sort of creep. But was it strange that Len had asked her to marry him? He'd admitted he had asked that. But he'd said it was in the context of them having a sexual relationship. She said he'd propose marriage when they'd not been involved at all. Was it strange he said he ought to strangle her and she'd been sure he didn't mean it but then had also said she'd been scared by it? And was it strange that after all of this, after the pestering, after being hit, after being propositioned for disgusting sex, and after he'd threatened to strangle her, Miss X had almost certainly spent her last night at the school in his bedroom and then lied about it. Was it strange that she'd replied to his letter with warmth, the sign-off yours, and encouraged both future written and in-person contact? As we know now, victims of coercive control, stalking and sexual assault sometimes feel trapped into maintaining contact with their abusers and their attackers. This could have been the case with Miss X, aka Edith Herbert. What was very likely was that she had been having a sexual relationship with Len and realized that no matter what its nature, if she admitted this in public, she'd become a scarlet woman. So rather than say anything that might incriminate herself, she'd gone on the record with only one fairly innocuous sexual allegation against Len. What really had been going on between them isn't known. What we do know is that, even taken with the newspaper incident and the alleged threat of strangulation, the coroner Mr Chiplin thought Miss X was not a particularly impressive witness. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. After the weekend, Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy of Sydney CIB told the court he'd interviewed many people in connection with Dot's murder. This included Hank the Yank McCarthy, no relation, who, within the past 12 months, had been pestering the deceased and who'd been spotted by her in Newcastle. Detective Sergeant McCarthy testified that he'd learned the Yank had been in St Peter's on the night of the murder. He gave no details about how he came by this information or what exactly it was. Detective Sergeant McCarthy told the court police had seen the whole staff of the school. That might have been true, but there were no details provided about interviews conducted with the male teachers who'd been on the premises the night of the murder, nor of the 18 boy boarders, three of whom were over 15. Detective Sergeant McCarthy said that on the 7th of December, he'd gone to Broughton to ask Len to come to the police station again. Len had agreed. On the way to the car, Len had tossed his half-smoked cigarette. The detective, presumably unseen by Len, had picked it up, knocked off the ember and wrapped the butt in a newspaper. 
This, of course, was the comparison cigarette the tobacconist had said was all but identical with the one found where Dot had supposedly sat with her killer. Len Roberts had been at the police station that day for 10 hours, from 11am to 9pm. Detective Sergeant McCarthy testified that the notes from the interview were taken in pencil and that they hadn't been typed up for several days for Len to sign. Why was that? He testified that it was because there were so many inquiries to make about the murder. Given what Miss X had already told him in interview, that she was sure Len was the killer because he'd threatened to strangle her and had done horrible things, it seemed extraordinary that typing up his statement and getting him to sign it wasn't a high priority. After all, the information it contained was a big part of the reason Len had been turned from witness to suspect at the start of the present inquiry. Now, that statement, which Len had refused to sign, was read to the court. It began with Len saying he knew Miss X. They'd been out three times, once to a dance, once to a movie, and once to an ice skating rink. He claimed they weren't intimate nor had he been intimate with any of the other maids who worked at Broughton. As for Dot Everett, he'd known and liked her, but he'd not asked her out. Part of the statement was clearly in response to allegations Miss X had made. Len supposedly said, I've never done anything to Miss X that I would be ashamed of. I was very fond of her. She had not refused to go out with me, and so far as I know, we are still very friendly. He denied ever hitting her with a newspaper or anything else. It is a lie if she said so. I have thrown a paper into the study, but that is all. I never said to Miss X that I would strangle her. Len had not asked her to give up her boyfriend and to marry him. He hadn't claimed he was coming into money or that he was going by an alias. Of course, the coroner had already heard Len admit from the stand that he'd been intimate with Miss X, that he'd asked her to marry him, and that in a moment of frustration, he'd hit her with a newspaper. If he'd lied about those things in his initial statement to the police, what else had he lied about? Had he threatened to strangle Miss X? Had he actually been intimate with Dot Everett? But the thing was, in his interview with the police, Len had not persisted in his deceptions. In fact, he'd come clean almost immediately. Quote, I told you a lie about my association with Miss X. I have had her down in my room often. I have had sexual intercourse with her so often that I could not tell you how many times. She used to come down to my room nearly every night when she finished her work. She used to come to my room by the back entrance. Nobody used to see her coming in. Then Len's statement switched back to the night of the murder, saying he hadn't seen or heard anyone or anything coming into the school. He had not killed Dot. Quote, I did not have anything to do with the murder. Detective Sergeant McCarthy ran through what Len had told him of finding a body and going up to the school on Sunday morning. Quote, Mrs. Futrell said to me, what is that down there, Len? And I said, I do not know. I will go and see. He added that he went back to the body, saw it was Dot, and then told Mrs. Futrell, it is Dot. She is dead. She is naked. Will you give me a sheet to cover her? Detective Sergeant McCarthy had asked if at first he thought it was Dot, and Len apparently said no. Then the detective asked, Are you quite sure that you did not examine the body before Mrs. Futrell spoke to you? Len had told him he was quite sure he had not. According to Detective Sergeant McCarthy, he'd then remarked that though Len was the gardener and the houseman, 
it had been the paper boy who, quote, saw the body about three minutes after he entered the school grounds. This insinuated that Len should have seen the body earlier and that he was waiting for someone else to find her. The paperboy, of course, had seen the body within three minutes of entering the school, but only after Len had discovered it. Despite this discrepancy, Detective Sergeant McCarthy claimed that when he asked Len if he'd been waiting for the paperboy to find the body, he'd received no answer. It had seemed extraordinary that Len, who had denied involvement all along, should not object to this allegation. Detective Sergeant McCarthy put it to Len that he'd been seen near the body when the paperboy first entered the grounds. Len supposedly had replied to this, your information is incorrect. Then Len had supposedly changed his story, admitting going over to see the body before he spoke to Mrs. Futrell and at that point thinking that it was Dot. He said he hadn't said this to the headmistress at first because he wasn't sure. Asked about the cigarette found at the crime scene, Len said he did roll his own log cabin fine cut tobacco using zigzag papers, but that it had not been his cigarette found. He also denied throwing a butt onto the ground for Detective Sergeant McCarthy to pick up and have analysed. During the interview, when Len was told that Dot's sister Elsie and her boyfriend Tom had both said he'd asked Dot out, he'd replied, That is a lie. I have never asked her to go out with me at all. But Detective Sergeant McCarthy testified he hadn't been able to explain why Elsie and Tom would make up such a thing. Detective Sergeant McCarthy confirmed what the court had already heard about him confronting Len with Miss X's claims about his violence, the horrible things he'd done, and her certainty that he'd killed Dot. While Len had repeated, I did not kill Dot, he couldn't advance any theory as to why Miss X should lie about him. Asked if he'd been keeping company with a number of women, he'd said, that's my business. Next, in the interview, when Detective Sergeant McCarthy had confronted Len with his sexual lies, he said, You first stated that you had never done anything at all to Miss X that you would be ashamed of, and later you admitted certain practices with her. To this, Len had supposedly said yes. Detective Sergeant McCarthy had then said, quote, On your own admission, you're a sex pervert. To this, Len had allegedly replied yes. Then he'd added, quote, if you think I did this murder, you'd charge me with it. A man would get a rope around his neck if he admitted it. That sounded very much like something a guilty man would say if he was arrogant enough to think he was going to get away with it. Detective Sergeant McCarthy said he'd told Len the murder had been very carefully investigated. He'd allegedly told Len, and by extension now told the court, that he and other police believed Dot had come in around 12 and had sat on the lawn. Quote, This was a habit of hers, not to go to bed after arriving home, as there seemed to be something worrying her. Detective Sergeant McCarthy had said to Len in that interview, quote, There was no doubt that on this occasion, she sat inside the gate to avoid any unpleasantness with Mrs. Geary, and she would have been there when you came in about a quarter to one. To this suggestion, Len had replied, she was not there. I did not see her. The detective told Len it was beyond doubt that Dot had been killed by someone she knew. Someone who was a secret sex pervert, and this was why he'd had to kill her after assaulting her. Len had supposedly made no response to this allegation. 
Detective Sergeant McCarthy had remarked that before her death, Dot had said she had a horror of someone and Miss X had said the same thing. Len's supposed response, I know nothing about that. Eight days later, when Len had been shown his typed statement, he denied saying anything to Detective Sergeant McCarthy about sucking Miss X's lips or having ever said anything about knowing how to cover his tracks after committing a murder. Len's statement, which he disputed and had not signed, presented him as lying to the police and changing his story. Detective Sergeant McCarthy's account of their interview made his responses sound even more contradictory, alleged that he'd clammed up when asked certain sensitive questions and that he'd all but confessed to being guilty of the crime. Detective Sergeant McCarthy told the court that he'd made tests in the Broughton School grounds and that it was possible to see where Dot had been found from the veranda. He knew because he'd tested it with a slim constable who'd lay down in that spot. While that place was dark at night, a beam of light shone from a lamp right where Dot's things had been. So Len had to have seen them if they'd been there when he came home. Under cross-examination, Detective Sergeant McCarthy admitted that he'd learned the terrible things Miss X had alleged was actually Len suggesting in the kitchen that they have sex. Mr. Wheeler asked the detective sergeant whether Len's initial denial of intimacy with Miss X had actually been to shield her from shame. He answered, In the first place, yes. In fact, Mr. Wheeler continued, hadn't Len asked for anything he said about any sexual relationship with her to be kept confidential to keep her from shame? Detective Sergeant McCarthy denied Len had said that. Mr. Wheeler said that the detective sergeant had to agree it was difficult to know Dot's movements after midnight. The detective agreed. The coroner said that he'd fixed 11.45pm to 1.15am as the difficult time gap. It had been established that Len had not arrived to the school until about 12.50, so he hadn't been there for the first two-thirds of that difficult period. Why, Mr Wheeler asked, had Detective Sergeant McCarthy decided that Dot had stayed inside the gate after arriving at the school for as long perhaps as an hour until, at least in the police's theory, Len had arrived home and committed the terrible crime? Detective Sergeant McCarthy said he'd based it on what other workers had said. Yet, of course, none of them had said anything about Dot staying out in the grounds voluntarily late at night. Mr Wheeler asked Detective Sergeant McCarthy a series of questions about why he thought Len was guilty. He deduced that after Miss X had left the school, Dot had replaced her in Len's affections. Detective Sergeant McCarthy said yes. Had Dot ever written to Tom to say she'd been accosted? Yes, she had. Did Detective Sergeant McCarthy believe that Dot had been attacked as described? He did. That she may have been afraid of someone? Yes. Now came the kicker. Have you any reason to believe that she was afraid of Roberts? Detective Sergeant McCarthy answered, I have no definite evidence of it, which was the long way of saying no. Mr Wheeler continued, Do you think that Roberts had molested her? Yes. In that case, Mr Wheeler wanted to know, wouldn't it be more reasonable to assume that Dot would not have sat in the grounds but would have gone to her room? Detective Sergeant McCarthy said that Mrs Geary had said Dot always carried a torch and this had been found in her purse, 
so when she'd come inside the school, she would have flashed it around to see if anyone was about. Quote, Further, I consider it reasonable to assume that she thought she was at least safe then. That was all very well, but Mrs. Geary had said that Dot had sat on the end of her bed one night when she was upset. She'd not said anything about the girl sitting out in the grounds, and neither had anyone else. Detective Sergeant McCarthy had pulled that from thin air. Mr. Wheeler asked, You were influenced tremendously by the statement of Miss X? Detective Sergeant McCarthy had to admit, It did influence my mind. Detective Sergeant William Alford was the last of 21 witnesses. Sergeant Magnay didn't ask him to corroborate much of what the court had already heard from other police. Detective Sergeant Alford testified about finding the impression on the grass that indicated two people had sat there, and they'd left a man and woman shoe marks in the gravel below. Mr Wheeler elicited from Detective Sergeant Alford that there had been an attempt of an unnatural offence on Dot made by someone with a perverted mind. He wanted to know how many men like that were out there. The detective answered, hundreds. Hundreds. Mr Wheeler asked how many in and around Newcastle. Detective Sergeant Alford admitted there were, quote, a number in this district who are alleged to be of that type. The inquest into Dot's murder was now in its fifth day, making it the longest in Newcastle history and, according to the coroner, one of the longest in the annals of Australian crime. Given the length of other witnesses' testimony, it had been expected that Detective Sergeant Alford would also be in the witness box for a long time. The coroner had said as much the previous Friday. But Police Prosecutor Sergeant Magnay didn't have many questions for Detective Sergeant Alford. Thus, there wasn't much to cross-examine, and he was soon excused from the witness box. After 26 hours of evidence, it was time now for the solicitors to give their final addresses to the coroner. Except, Mr Chiplin ruled he'd heard all he needed to. He announced, I have made up my mind. Mr Chiplin had a 4,000-word summation ready to go. But, mercifully, he refused to keep everyone in suspense while he reiterated the evidence for and against Len Roberts. He was going to get straight to the point. After the formal announcement that he was satisfied the deceased was Dorothy May Everett and that she'd been murdered by strangulation, Mr. Chiplin went on. Quote, I have allowed great latitude in this inquest because after six weeks of investigation, no person has been arrested and charged by the police. Mere suspicion however strong it may be, suffices not. The evidence must shut out any other reasonable hypothesis. There are reasonable hypotheses that others beside Roberts had opportunity to enter and commit the crime. There was, he said, no case against Leonard William Roberts. The coroner's court erupted into applause. Over the next 40 minutes, Mr. Chiplin set out his reasons, including that he'd found much of Miss X's testimony hard to credit. Suspicion did fall on Len because neither Mrs. Futrell nor the paperboy had seen him bend over Dot at any time and lift the corsets from her face. So, how had Len known it was her? But while this and his supposed contradictory statements were suspicious, he'd also testified to deny these versions. Further, the court had heard of strangers in the school grounds at night and that Dorothy had previously been attacked by someone she'd said was a stranger. 
Mr. Chiplin then was duty-bound to find that Dorothy May Everett had been murdered by a person or persons unknown. Len was free to go. The public gallery erupted again. Len was clapped out of the courtroom. Seeking to avoid any further attention, he took the back way out of the court. But a crowd of hundreds of people outside saw him 100 yards away and they rushed down the street and surrounded him. The Sydney Morning Herald characterised it as, quote, an almost hysterically enthusiastic reception. One woman tried to kiss him. Everyone wanted to shake his hand. News cameramen took their photos. Truth reported this triumphant mood, but its headline reminded readers that the, quote, vampire murder is not solved. Interviewed, Len said, quote, My conscience was clear, and though the inquest could not help being an ordeal for any man, I was able to sleep and eat all right. I'm glad it's all over now. But it wasn't. The law wasn't done with Leonard William Roberts. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part four of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, The Vampire Murder. The fifth and final part will be released on regular podcast platforms very soon. But Forgotten Australia supporters can hear it right now, ad-free. If you'd like to support Forgotten Australia and help me make this podcast, you can do so by chipping in at Patreon. The link is in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.